We'll be focusing our attention on Matthew chapter 6 this morning, and specifically beginning with verse 22. Some of you know that um, last weekend we had a very interesting weekend of thinking about missions to East Asia and China particularly. And so last Saturday night we had uh, really a wonderful little banquet and some folks talked about missions to China and two people came, uh, Joe and Vivian Peebles, who had been in the mission field for 25 years. And so we talked about, we really listened to them about their experiences in China. And they said something or they had something in their PowerPoint that's stuck with me for the last eight days. They began their talk reminding us, because we weren't all good students of Chinese history, that back in 1949 when the communists took over, uh, that effectively uh, put to, to rest Chinese mis- or missions to China. And a lot of uh, Christian missionaries had to leave and flee the country. And then there was a great deal of oppression for those Chinese Christians that lived uh, at that time in China. And so China was considered what in the mission field is called a closed country, closed to the gospel. In other words, if you wanted to come to China at that particular time, you could, but you couldn't say, I'm a missionary. You'd have to come as something else, a a teacher of English or something else. And um, Joe and Vivian really talked about their 25 years, and they were able to be in a period where they were watching the country become more open to the gospel. And as most of you know, China is the fastest growing church in, on the planet at this particular point. And they said in their presentation, and this is the thing that stuck with me, is they said, you know, it had been a closed country for so long, but now it's really open to the gospel, but it'll only be open for about five to ten more years. I was thinking, why? I mean, do they know something that I don't know? I mean, they could. I don't know. Never been to China. But they somehow know that they, or they have some sense, or the mission field has this sense that there's a window, but in, in five to ten years, that window is going to sort of effectively close, and there at least won't be the same freedom for the gospel as there is right now. What's going to close a country down like that? Their answer, wealth. China is economically really an enormous economic engine, and it's bringing all of its country up in economics. And what they think, not just Joe and Vivian, I think those who do mission work, think that, well, once this country reaches a certain level of wealth, then the wealth has the same effect as communism. Isn't that fascinating? It closes people off from the gospel. And so I wanted to ask them, but I didn't. Well, what would missionaries say about America? I I guess I didn't want to hear their answer, so... But, but it, it's fascinating to me that their, their assessment, and look, it might not be right, I don't know, but that effectively ears get closed when money comes rushing into a country. It's not surprising 
because Jesus says something similar to the rich young ruler. We're in this series this morning that's talking about the next step. And so we've spent the fall really thinking about what, what should be your next step in terms of who you are, maybe what you should be. Maybe God's calling you to do something specific, to be something specific, to think through something specific. And I want to spend a couple of weeks discussing or really beginning a discussion on how you might take the right kind of step in terms of your perspective on wealth and possessions. You'll see in your bulletin, and it'll be announced for the next couple of months, that in January we're starting what's going to be a three- or four-month Sunday school class by a guy named Dave Ramsey, who has run something called Financial Peace University. He's fairly popular. You could see him on television, or you could, you could get a radio show by him. Very, very easy to understand, very practical understanding of how you should view your wealth and how you should be running your finances. So if you're somebody who's not very good at this, uh, you need to take that course, and you'll get more information about it, but I would just want you to be aware of it because I'm not going to be able to say everything like he says it, for one thing, and certainly not from up here. So I'm just sort of plugging that course. Uh, but I, one of the things I realize, and I feel this tension within myself, is whenever you come to a church and the preacher decides to preach about money, there's a kind of a nervousness, especially if you've just got your, your neighbor or your friend to come for the first time. I remember this guy who has been working next to me for, I don't know, two or three years. We had an office in a different place, and I'd been, you know, befriending this guy. We'd been to lunch, and, you know, we just sort of had a friendship, and it developed to, he knew I was the pastor of a church, and, you know, why don't you come sometime? I'm sure I'll come sometime, Paul. But he just never did until one Sunday, and it was when I was preaching about money. And I was like, oh, but there seems to be, if you've invited your neighbor, I know internally, you just want to lean over and say, he doesn't talk about this all the time. And I understand because there's a weirdness. You see it on television. You maybe been in churches. It is felt somehow it's manipulative or it's just about what you can give, uh, not what you've been given in the, in the gospel. And uh, there, you, you could have had some ne- negative experiences. So I, I understand that, but I just want to make some observations Jesus wasn't shy about talking about money and possessions. 15% of all he said concerns money and possessions. So he talked more about money and possessions in this world than he did heaven and hell combined. He spoke twice as much about money and possessions than prayer and faith combined. Nearly half the parables are about money and possessions. If Jesus was your pastor, and you'd be like, oh, awesome, I'm going to the church where Jesus is the pastor. One out of every six of his sermons would be about money and possessions. So I might apologize to you as the pastor that one out of six of my sermons is not about money and possessions. But it's a critical piece of who we are and what we're about. If you're here and you're somebody who's just trying to ask some questions about religion and specifically about Christianity, and you might be asking yourself, well, why should I be paying attention to this particular sermon? I would say this, that Jesus informs us something very very critical in this particular passage. 
And that is that there's a fundamental connection between your faith and your finances. There's a, there's a fundamental connection between your faith and your finances. If you and I, or if I was, were going to the doctor, and I just wanted a, a general physical checkup, and I sit down and he takes my, uh, my heart, he does some blood, he taps me around in some, you know, you know, they do this, I never figure out why, what that does, but it makes you feel like he's figuring something out. And you've, uh, okay, that's the checkup. And then you sit on that table with the toilet paper roll across it, right? And they start asking you questions. And they ask you questions about, you know, can you tell me about your stress level? Can you tell me about your family? Can you tell me about your work? I want to say, I'm here for a physical, not, not a Q&A on my life. Well, you know, there, there's a fundamental connection between the rest of your life and your physical life. The doctor knows that. We can't just say it doesn't matter what you do at work. It doesn't matter the kind of stress you're under. It doesn't matter about your family history. Those things matter. There's a fundamental connection between those things and your physical health. And whatever faith you may have, there's a fundamental connection between your finances and your faith. And Jesus is trying to point out to those who want to follow after him, there's a fundamental connection between those two, and I don't want you to miss it. We see it in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that we see it is in uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the the wee little man who ran down the street and uh, climbed up the sycamore tree. Remember, Jesus went home with this man who was the tax collector, who really was a very rotten man. He'd stolen from his own friends and his family. And Jesus has dinner at his house. And they'd had a long conversation, which I wished... Luke had recorded, but this is what we understand that happens at the end of the conversation. Zacchaeus is radically transformed by Jesus. Now, how do we know Zacchaeus was radically transformed by Jesus? It's because of what Zacchaeus says. He stands up, and in front of his dinner party, he says, I'm going to give away half of everything that I own. What do you think Jesus is going to say to that? Well, that's a good start, but you might want to say the sinner's prayer first, Zacchaeus. You might want to understand justification, salvation, sanctification. He doesn't say that. Zacchaeus stands up. He understands there's a fundamental connection between my faith and my finances. And Jesus looks at him and says, Today, salvation has come to this house. So, so Jesus understands this connection. And if we want to talk about eternity, if we want to talk about God, if we want to talk about the life after this life, if you want to talk about faith, you've got to talk about your finances. Those things are inseparable. You can't come and say, well, you know, I just kind of wanted to learn about the God thing. I didn't need any kind of thing about my finances. Jesus is saying it's impossible to separate those two things. And we'll see why that's the case as we go along here. Second thing um, is helpful to know, especially if you're thinking about Christianity, is that giving is embedded in the character of God. God so loved the world that he, he gave. He gave. You see it here on the cross. This is 
what he gave. He gave himself. He gave his son. And so if you're going to follow after Christ, one of the embedded characteristics of what you're like is you're going to be a giver. You're going to be a a very generous giver, not just of money, but your time and your talents and all of the things that you've been given by God. When you're coming to Christ, I would want you to hear me say, come and see. Come and see. It's incredible. But I want you to know that when you see, you're going to hear him say, come and die. Die to yourself. Die to your idolatry. And one of the biggest idols, and certainly those who are doing missions to China understand it, is wealth. It has a sense of closing your ears to the gospel. The other thing that makes talking about money a little uncomfortable, really just this is from the people who are members in a congregation side, is that when you talk about money, one of the reasons it's uncomfortable is it tends to remind people of a poor performance. Now, I don't know who falls into these statistics, and I don't know if these statistics are accurate, but these are the statistics that George Barna talks about. When you come to church and you talk about this idea of tithing, maybe you've heard of the word, but it's an Old Testament term meaning 10%. You would take what you have and you'd give 10%. Typically, it was the first 10% away to God. And then you would use your the 90% still as God's, but he would say, I want you to remember everything came from me, and just as a reminder, you give me 10%. Now, whether that's an Old Testament uh, issue that moves into the New Testament is something that we can argue about. But just for the sake of that being a standard, here's what George Barna has recorded, is that 5% of all Christians gave 10% to churches and nonprofits. Only 5% of all Christians gave 10%. That means means 95% of us didn't. And then he said, well, what if, what if we try to narrow that down, just not anybody who says they're a Christian, we'll just put this term in there like it could be different, but the born-again Christians, which I guess meant, well, you're the real serious Christian. Well, it went from 5% all the way up to 7%. So we're reminded that we're really not very good at this and so we don't necessarily like to hear about things that you're you're good at and it could be that somebody would say well i'm not really good at that because i don't see that standard in the old i don't see that standard coming over from the old testament to the new testament so yes that was a standard for israel but i'm not we're not israel we're the church and so there's a new standard and we're free from that and let's just go with that for the sake of argument You see, in the Old Testament, you didn't have the advantage of knowing the great gift of God. You could see it as a shadow, maybe, but you didn't really see it in its completeness. But now in the New Testament, you see exactly what God's going to do, how generous He's going to be. And it's impossible for me to think that you could say, well, I'm not moving that standard over into the New Testament. Instead, I can spend 100% on myself. I think the Old Testament is a floor to stand on to get higher. Not something that you would eliminate. 
And the reason is, is because your motivation would be the cross. You would see how much more generous God is. And so you'd say, well, if, if I didn't see it before and I was giving 10%, well, now that I see it, I would want to even be more generous with my time and my talents and my possessions. So we think about, I want you to think about 10% as not a goal to reach, but like training wheels. If you're giving 10%, well, then you got your training wheels on. And it's training wheels to get to even more generous giving. But if you're only at 2 or 3%, then make 10% your goal. But once you get to 10%, you can't think, well, I'm done. It's just the training wheels to say, now, now I can really start giving. Second reason I think it makes us uncomfortable is that when you talk about giving, it's so concrete. I mean, prayer, faith, those things can be faked. And I wouldn't necessarily know it. If you say, Paul, I understand you're going through a hard time. I'll pray for you. Okay, great. I mean, I'd love for you to do that. But unless you do it right at that moment, I don't know if you've actually prayed for me. You, do, I, you go away and I think, well, I guess they prayed for me. Great. I don't, I don't know. But if you say, Paul, I'm going to give you $1,000. Whoa, I'm going to know. <laughs> I'm not going to say, well, I don't know. I don't know. Did I get that 1000 I'm going to say, no, I got the 1000 it's a very concrete way to measure. And because it's so concrete, I think sometimes that makes us nervous. In Luke chapter 3, the passage we read about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is baptizing people and saying they must repent. And we think of that word repentance as re turn around. You're moving in a direction, and when you repent, you turn and you move in a different direction. And that's usually not meant to, to, for you to think about that physically as much as mentally. I think in a certain direction, and now that I've intersected with God, I'm going to now think in a different direction. And John the Baptist, these three different groups come to him and say, well, what must we do to keep with this repentance. We want to bear fruit. We want to have this spiritual transformation. And notice that each one of his responses have to do with finances. The people in the crowd come, and he says, well, if you have two tunics, then you need to share one. The tax collectors come and say, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than, you, you, than, you, than you're authorized. The soldier comes, and sa he says, well, don't extort somebody. Be content with your wages. Isn't that odd? They're coming saying, I need to repent. I need to think in a different direction. I need to move in a different direction. What should I do? And every time John says, you've got to think about your finances. In none of the three cases does he say something about prayer or anything else. He says, that, well, if you want to start, this is a good starting point. Why? So concrete. It's not get, well, just have more faith. I don't know. How do I measure that? How do I give away one of my tunics? Well, I know. Got two, now I only have one. So it's a very concrete way of measuring whether you're moving in the right direction. And so because it's so concrete, I think sometimes it's difficult. Giving exposes your real treasure and the real condition of your heart. You don't get into heaven by giving. It just is a gauge. And it's such a concrete gauge. And the reason it's so concrete is that it helps us not to be able to wiggle around it in any way. 
Well, I want to turn our attention here to this passage in chapter uh, Matthew chapter 6. And I, you know this passage in the Bible is called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're in the red letter edition, you've got all red here in 5, 6, and 7. And really, this Sermon on the Mount is to say, hey, all of those people who want to follow after me and you want to know how to live your life, basically, this is how to do it. And you'll just notice, you can look in your Bibles and just see the topics that are there. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving my enemies, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting. All of these things, this, you want to know about these things, this is how it happens. And then finally, he gives this lesson about possessions or wealth. And we really only have time today to look at just a few verses, and that begins with verse 22. So let me read this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body would be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So I'm reading this and I'm asking myself, why is Jesus even talking about anatomy? I mean, here he's talking about possessions. You see, don't lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, verse 19, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Okay, that all makes sense. But here he inserts just a couple of verses. And it's a little anatomy lesson about how your eye works and how your body works. And I want to ask myself, what, what does this mean? Why did you insert this? And just like all good preachers, you have to have a good illustration. So Jesus is talking about a particular truth, but he says, hey, let's just think of it in this way. And he pulls the human anatomy in to tell us what he means. So let's first look at this. What does he mean? Well, you know that in order for a body to function correctly, the, it needs the eyes. So it can, the, the lamp, the, the eyes are like a lamp. It lets light into the body. And so you get up and you walk out this door or you walk out that door because light has come into your eyes and it sent a message to your brain to say, go out the door, don't try to go through the wall. If you're a third grader here, you know exactly where the donut table is. And you, your eye has let light in and it's a lamp and you go right towards the donut table. You know exactly where it is. And so what happens is when the eye is good, when this little part of your body is good, then the whole body operates well. We're not running into anything. We don't have double or triple vision. When it has a single focus, when Jesus uses the word healthy in the Greek, that word means single. When your eye is single, then it's healthy. But if you don't have a healthy eye, then you have double vision and you look at the doors and say, which door? Is it this one or is it that one? And you have an unhealthy body. It hurts the rest of your body. And if your eye is bad, look at verse 23, then it doesn't matter about the surrounding light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. See, this one little thing has a big effect on the rest of your life. If this one little thing is good, the rest of your body is going to be good. If this one little thing is bad, you can have light all around and you can't see a thing. Even worse, verse 23, some people who can't see anything think they can see and they don't even realize it. We'll talk about the blinding effects of 
wealth and possessions in a minute. But I just want you to understand what Jesus is saying here with this illustration. If this one little thing is good, it's going to be healthy for the rest of your body. If this one little thing is bad, then you can have light in all kinds of other areas and you're going to be running into walls. And you can think, I think I'm good. And not be good. And then you're really living in darkness. I have a dog, my little dog, Maddie. She thinks she can see. But she cannot. She can't see anything. But if you take her on a walk, she's charging out like the dog on the Eskimo sled. You know, she's pulling you along, this little poodle. Well, you know what? Pulling you along right into the drain. She doesn't have any idea where she's going. Runs into trees, fire hydrants, anything. So you have to guide her through it. It's really kind of a pill. She thinks she can see, but she's running into things all the time. And she's a terrible hazard because she thinks she can still see. And see, you can say, I think I see, and you're running into stuff all the time. Now, I have a dog for sale. No, I don't. But you see, that's, that, that, I see that and I think that's a lot of people. They think they can see, but they can't. And they keep running into problems, and mostly they're financial problems all the time, and they really can't see. So what is the illustration meant to really tell us? And I want to close on just a couple of points here. First thing I think that Jesus is informing us is, about this is how money and possessions exercise power. I think Jesus is using this little little picture to say, I want you to understand how money and possession exercise their power. It has a money and possession have a, a blinding effect. Andrew Carnegie, who's one of the richest men in American history, a steel magnet from uh, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area. His first job, he made a dollar twenty a week. Can you imagine? He worked for a whole week and got a dollar and twenty cents. At one point, when he was thirty-three, he was making fifty thousand, which was quite a bit of money back then. And this is what he said: "Man must have an idol." Isn't that interesting? Man must have an idol. You might just ask yourself, do you think that's true? you think man must have an idol? I would say man is made to worship. No man is worshiping nothing. Man is designed to be a worshiper. So you will worship something. And if you're worshiping the living God, then you have freedom. If you're not, it's an idol. So man must have an idol. Amass, the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. And he writes this to himself. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon money, that must degrade me beyond all hope of permanent recovery. So you might just want to gauge yourself this week. How much time do I spend thinking about money? How much stress am I under because I feel like I don't have enough? Or I'm worried about possessions in some form or some way? 
quickly two blinding effects. First of all, money and possession have the blinding effect to thinking that you don't have a problem. We talked about this. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard. And he's talking about possessions. And he's saying, you've got you to be like a century. You're, you're posting somebody and, and they're looking and they're watching out. You've got to be super careful about this one. You don't always have to watch out about everything. Because you may not know if you've fallen into it. But this is one of those things. You've got to really be on guard. Because you don't know yourself when you've fallen into it. I mean, you don't have to watch out for adultery in the same way you have to watch out about your money and possessions. Because when you, you're with another woman, you know, hey, that's not my wife. You know it immediately. You don't go, I don't know, you kind of look like my wife. That guy, I got confused on that. That's not one of those things. But see, what happens with money and possession is you walk right in. You think it's okay. It's no big deal. You're just like everybody else. And you're married to an idol. And so Jesus said, you've got to watch out. You have no idea when you're walking into it. You've got to be careful because it has a blinding effect where you're saying, I just don't think I'm one of those people who has a problem. And here's what, here, if, you're, if this is going through your head, then you know you have a problem. Yeah, I have a problem with money and possessions. But I know somebody who does. If you think that, you've got the problem. See, it only takes one person. And it, Satan's good if it's your neighbor or somebody that's sitting here or somebody in your family that's a good person. It only takes one person who spends a little bit more money extravagantly than you do. And you go, yeah, well, he's got the problem. And see, you have it. You don't even know it. You've walked right into it in some way. And Jesus is saying, you're the one that's blind. So don't think you're not the person that Jesus might be talking about. It has a, a blinding effect. You walk into it and you don't even know that you're walking into it. The second way it has a blinding effect is is that you're not really realizing that all the things that you have are God's. If you're here this morning and you think, I think the pastor is going to, in the, in the end of the sermon, he's going to say, you should give more of your money. Then that's not what I'm talking about. You're probably blinded. Because it's not your money. I wouldn't want you to give any of your money. See, if you think it's your money, that's the problem. God's given these talents away. He's given time away. He's given His wealth and possessions away. You're just a steward of it. You don't own any of it. And if you have the idea, well, I've got my stuff and I'm going to give God some stuff, you've got the disease. It's like being in the grocery store line. You've done this. You have a little kid. And they put the, the candy at like, you know, the three-foot eye level, right? And they know why that is. Because moms, dads are pulling their kids through the, the line. And the kid looks at all the candy. And, of course, at 100% of the time, what does the kid say? Just this one time, could we have, you know, the Skittles or the M&Ms? 
And if you're a good parent, no, we can't have those. Can't have it every time we go through the line. You know, you just get, you've got the lines. And then every once in a while as a parent, you're kind of hungry for one of them. And you're hoping they ask, yeah, okay, this time, get the M&M's. Peanut. Why? Because you, really, you just want one. Yeah, put that on the conveyor belt. So you get them, and you get the, give the little, you know, the peanut M&M's to your kid. They open it up. Well, awesome. Hey, can I have one? No! Why? They're mine. They're not yours. I just bought them for you. Give me that whole bag. But you see, that's what happens with us. We're just like the little kid. We got this big bag of peanut M&M's. And you think they're yours. God has given you the whole thing. And somehow you think it's yours. And when you come to the church, you go, well, I've got to give one of them away. I'm not going to do anything else. If you have that mentality, you've got the problem. You've got the disease. You've got the blindness. You see, Jesus owns it all. God owns it all. And you're just stewarding it. You're just a financial advisor. You're just coming in saying, hey, I'm doing my best. I think this is the best investment. But I don't own any of it. That's why I encourage people who are young people, especially even children, as they get money, to train themselves to give away and be faithful with a little. Because if you can't be faithful with a little, you can't be faithful with a lot. If you can't give a dollar away when you've just made ten, you can't give ten thousand away when you've made a hundred thousand. It is a lie to think, well, when I get some more money, it'll be easier to give away. That's not true. That's a lie. So you have to train yourselves. You have to work at it so you don't become blind. The missionaries in China, right or wrong, think that in the next five to ten years, wealth is going to close down the country effectively to hearing the gospel. In financial terms, you've heard the term upside down. You're upside down on your mortgage. That means you owe more than your house is worth. You're upside down on your car payment, meaning you bought a car for 25, you still owe 20, but it's only worth 15. You've heard these terms now in the marketplace all the time. Some of us are upside down. I'm hoping that this part in this series is going to help you see, I'm just upside down. I think about my finances all wrong because I think they're my finances. I don't think of myself as a steward of anything. I think of myself as an owner, a rightful owner. I earned it. I deserve it. I get to decide what I want to do with it. Jesus Christ has come to turn upside-down people right side back up. But if China's going to have a problem in five to ten years, we've been in the problem for 50 or 100 years. So we're swimming in the soup. You have to really ask yourself, am I really willing to have God's Word address my actions and attitudes in this area? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this passage. 
And I pray for those here who might think, well, I've just got so many other good things going on. I've got so much light around me in other areas. I just don't have it going on in this one area. They live in the greatest darkness. If this one area is bad, then the rest of it is dark. So this is a difficult teaching. causes a lot of questions to be asked. And so I pray that people would ask the questions and wrestle through to the answer. But that we, that I, would see myself clearly. That you would take the blinders off so I could see how my possessions frequently possess me. Lord, help us to take the next right step. In Jesus' name.